Welcome to the Every Day is a New Day podcast and live show. The inspirational show about moving forward and choosing to be more of you. Transmuting the self-doubt and stepping into courageously aligned confidence in who you uniquely are. My name is Kim O'Neill. I'm a twice-certified transformational confidence coach, Reiki master, best-selling author, and former crime analyst who now helps empathic, heart-centered individuals shatter the noise of self-doubt, find clarity on what self-love really looks like, and the courage to be peacefully grounded in who you've always known you are from the inside out. Join me for the live shows on Facebook and YouTube and visit KimO'NeillCoaching.com for more info. Let's get to it. All right, and welcome everybody. Welcome to the Every Day is a New Day show. My name is Kim O'Neill, and today I have an amazing guest for you. His name is Dr. Hassan Teda. Welcome, Dr. Hassan. Hi. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great, great. Thank you for the kind invitation. This is awesome. Absolutely. And and I have so much more I'm going to share about you. But I actually first want to ask you, I have had this tendency to refer to you as Dr. Hassan. Am I alone in that? Or do other people also? No, I think it's because some people have difficulty pronouncing my last name. So the default is like, I know Hassan. So Dr. Hassan, that's fine. Yeah. My last name is actually Teta. So Dr. Teta. But, Dr. Uh, Dr. Hassan is fine. That was that, that's that's uh, perfectly fine. It's it's just tended to be my inclination, but I toggle back and forth. So thank you for explaining that for us, though. Sure. So it is such an honor to have Dr. Teta here with us tonight because this man is incredible, and not only incredible for what he's accomplished, but for his purpose, for his mission, for his message. And I'm so honored to be able to share that with you tonight. So. For those who are with us, whether you're live or on the replay, do go ahead and say hello in the comments. We love having you here. Let us know what your questions, your takeaways are throughout our conversation, and we look forward to engaging with you as well. So, and I see we've got a lot of people here with us, so, so good to see you all. And um, so, Dr. Hassan, Teta, what I typically do is I typically will read an excerpt of someone's bio to introduce them, give some of their background. You have such a meaty, rich background and bio, though. What I'm actually going to do is I want to share with, with everyone some of those, those titles and accomplishments uh, that you have, that you've already done to just kind of give people the range of, of, of who you are in your background. So, so with that, I, I want to share with you, Dr. Hassan Teda, who is a first generation American from Ghana, who is also a heart and lung transplant surgeon. He's also a U.S. Navy captain. He's also the author of five to six books. I, I was looking at that and he five or six books at this point, one of them being The Art of Human Care, which we're going to be talking about tonight. He's also got three master's degrees. He's a marathon runner. He's an associate professor of surgery. Uh, he, you know, he's served in, in combat and all. I mean, like he's done so much. I don't understand how you've done it all, Dr. Teda. And underneath all of that is this message of, mind, body, soul, purpose, all of that, how it all connects to everything. So Dr. Ted, in your own words, how, how can you, um, how do you 
describe your background and where you've come from and, and who you are today? Uh, very good question. Uh, I would say it's all divinely uh, ordered. You know, I have had um, quite uh, an opportunity to live. I, I would like to think uh, a very blessed life. And, you know, the, the things that you enumerated, all of those uh, <laughs> many things about my background, um, you know, it's it's interesting to hear you say that. I, I don't I don't I don't look at it like accomplishing a lot. I, in fact, I feel like there's so much more that I, I have yet to accomplish and want to accomplish. Uh, perhaps what I could say uh, that you know certainly outlined in the book and and perhaps will give some context to all of the things that you enumerated and maybe give individuals a sense of where does this drive come from is simply this. You know, I had uh, a near death experience when I was in undergrad. Uh, I write about that. I, 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 I speak about it. I live it. Uh, and every day I'm reminded of how precious life is and how one should never sacrifice the gift that they have uh, simply because uh, I do my work in transplant. I'm just now coming back from one right now as it, as it stands. So that's why I'm in my uh, surgical pajamas here. Uh, but because I survived that experience myself, it engendered this really deep gratitude for uh, having every day be a new day, you know, and waking yeah. up with that sense of purpose because uh, it's, uh, it's something that's often lost, I think, with a lot of individuals. Uh, but not only am I reminded about my own experience, but every day, each and every day, when I experience the tragic loss of the patients that I've uh, encountered in the, in the donor world that now are donating an organ to uh, someone in need, uh, I experience this great miracle of life on the other side when uh, someone receives a new organ and they are sort of uh, renewed in such a way that is intangible. You know, you get a new lease on life. Uh, and it's a constant reminder of how delicate the balance is between life and death, uh, but more importantly, how one, uh, when they do have life and more importantly, have health and life, uh, you know, really have the entire world uh, open to them. And uh, if if you can think about having that perspective on a day-to-day -day basis uh, and really not forget that uh, true great gift that you have when you wake up with each new day, uh, you would, uh, I think, uh, <laughs> you, you would have this incredible power to go out and accomplish, uh, you know, anything that your heart and mind uh, sets out to, uh, to do. Well, one of the things I found most interesting, um, I did finish your book today. And, um, and here's the thing I want to show everyone. So, so the book is not that long and yet your heart shows up and like every page and story of this book that it took me a while to get through because I kept getting emotional. So that's why I honestly feel so honored to have you here tonight because our world is ready to hear your message, to hear this combination of art and science coming together, blending and and creating. You talk about it not being just about health care, but human care. Right. And, and, and I would say maybe the first thing that I was most surprised is that you didn't initially want to be a doctor. You wanted no. to be an artist. That's right. Yes. That is correct. So you mentioned that my parents, uh, well, I'm, for, I'm, a, I'm an African-American in, in the true sense in terms of first generation African-American. My parents both immigrated here uh, in the late 60s and 70s. So I was born in America, born in a little town in New York called Brooklyn. So I was made in the USA, as my dad liked to say. 
Um, but, uh, you know, anyone who has had that immigrant experience and particularly, you know, immigrants coming to this country sort of seeking a better life and a better world and, and all of those things that, you know, kind of go into the hopes and dreams of people that come to America, this sort of beacon of, of a country, uh, especially when they're leaving something that was, it was much less, you know that they put a lot of their hopes and dreams in their children. So you can imagine that, you know, my, my parents coming from humble beginnings and, and here I am graduating from high school and, and or actually getting ready to go to high school, I should say, graduating from middle school, middle, middle school and getting ready to go to high school. And I'm really interested in art. I have a portfolio. Maybe my close friends are all artists. Um, you know, back then, uh, graffiti was was really a true art form, and I just embraced that. And and I came to my dad, and I said, I got into art and design high school. You know, I they they recognized my talent because I had to go and I had to do a test and, and draw and, and a live figure, and I had my portfolio. And he looked at me and he said, You'll never make a living as an artist. You're not going to art school. You better go to engineering and science school. So I wound up going to Brooklyn Tech as a consequence. Um, you know, in retrospect, it, it was not entirely a bad thing. The the, the path I've led is, has been a blessed one, but I still have the innate inner artist in me. And, uh, you know, the book that you are sharing now uh, with your platform and your audience is is, is is truly the work of of my life story in, in so many ways. And uh, I'm I'm really fortunate that on the cover there, you'll you'll see that it says with Ella Blue, and Ella Blue is my daughter. Uh, at a very early age, I, I noticed a uh, a talent that she had for art, and I said I'm not going to be that dad, and I'm going to nurture it. And so she is uh, she's my 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 blessing, my inspiration, and my Ella Blue is my artist, and she has illustrated many of the hearts and some of the drawings in the book, and so. Uh, her love of art is uh, infused within, uh, you know, the art of uh, human care. <laughs> so there you have it. It's all wrapped up. <laughs> it's 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 beautiful. It's it's this combination of, um, I would say, well, first I would. Okay, for anybody who's an aspiring doctor or maybe a newly graduated doctor or just anybody who's wanting to connect deeper to a sense of purpose and passion in their life, this is an excellent book. I'm not just saying that because he's my guest today. It really is. Um, and it's a hardback. It's just, it's a, it's a beautiful book. Um, but I mean, you did so great at weaving your stories, you know, your, your stories of being a doctor, but also your life stories and then quotes through it. And there's one quote in particular I do want to highlight because I noticed what you did there. I, <laughs> you have here, with health, wisdom reveals itself. Art becomes manifest. We have strength to fight life's challenges. Our wealth becomes useful. We may apply our intelligence and positively change the world for generations. And that's a Dr. Hassan Teda quote. Do you want to talk about that? Because I noticed that there was the reverse of some of that that you also infused that in here. Correct. So any great artist and anyone that studies art history knows all artists are really thieves, right? We steal art <laughs> from others and we steal the, the, the genius of others and we make it ours, we make it personal, we take it and we embrace it. So very early in, um, in my career, actually, while I was a, a fellow in medical school, I came across a, a quote and uh, it was uh, at, uh, in Minnesota, I trained in Minnesota for my thoracic surgery uh, training. And on this particular day, I was really, really sick. And I walked past this wall every day while I was at the hospital. 
and it's a huge mural on a wall and it has a quote there and it's a very striking quote. And the quote is, when, when health is absent, wisdom cannot reveal itself, right? Wisdom cannot reveal itself, art cannot manifest, we cannot have strength to fight, our wealth becomes useless and we cannot apply our intelligence. And it was written, or the quote was written by a person named Herophilus of Chalcedon. So on this particular day, I passed this, this wall that I walk past every day and I am not feeling well at all. I feel deathly ill. And it's like in, in back in, uh, you know, in that time and in, in those days of training, uh, you know, we had a mantra, especially as a cardiac surgeon, you were either in the hospital working, that means seeing your patients operating, or you were at in the hospital because you were a patient and you couldn't work and you were a patient and you're in some bed somewhere. And on that particular day, I'm in the hospital working, but I did not feel well. And I walked past this, uh, this wall because I was on my way to the, you know, sort of the, the infirmary, if you will. And I see this and it strikes me because on this particular day, my health is absent. And again, it's a reminder of how I felt back in undergrad when I was, you know, literally knocking on death's door. And I, it just, it just struck me that, this quote really encapsulated what many of us are now realizing, particularly in this era of COVID, right? Because now COVID has it has a stranglehold on on the, on the entire society. Whether you've been impacted by yourself, you you've lost loved ones, you're fearful of getting sick yourself. Everyone now realizes how important health is, right? It is it is this this threat to our health that's actually grabbed grappled, you know, our, our society and our psyche. And so you think about it. Yes, without health, health is foundational. If you think about like Maslow's triangle, you know, that, you know, that base, if you, you, you need health and safety, but if you don't have health, you can be the richest person in the world and you won't enjoy it. If you don't have health, you can be the most artistic and creative person in the world, but you'll never let your art manifest and blossom. You can be the you know, you know, the most intelligent person in the world, but without health, you'll never be able to apply that intelligence. You'll never be able to impart that intelligence to other people. So health is so found so foundational and important in every aspect of life beyond that. And so we are in healthcare entrusted with bringing people this really great, rich, this really great, rich, you know, uh, an incredible gift of health. Yeah. And so um, you're right. So that was a little bit of a twist on on this person, Herophilus of Chalcedon, who happened to be the personal physician to Alexander the Great. And so I thought to myself, that quote has endured the ages. And I'm sure it was an interpretation of something that Herophilus even, you know, uh, probably observed over his lifetime. And, uh, and, and so that's how uh, that quote came to be. <laughs> well, uh I know you have you have very um, a very powerful message you'd like to share and core elements of that 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 are all parts of it and everything. But before we get to that, would would you like to share with everyone your story of when you had that near death experience and how you came to be the doctor that you are today, who emphasizes human care? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting. You know, again, it, it has so much correlation to what's happening now. You know, the fear, the the anxiety, the uncertainty. Uh, and, and, you know, feeling and, and sort of kind of going back in time in my mind, I, I kind of, you know, can appreciate some of the, the great stresses that we're all facing right now. So I was an undergrad. So I was a junior in undergrad. I went to a small, small arts and science college in upstate New York. 
And I, uh, I, by that point, I was well down the road of going to become a doctor. I was an undergrad biochemistry major and, uh, you know, I was doing pretty good. I, I actually got an early decision uh, interview um, opportunity to Johns Hopkins University. So I had this really rare opportunity and a very competitive program to be able to go interview and potentially get accepted a year earlier than most students would have been for medical school, but not any medical school, Johns Hopkins, you know? So I was right. like, over the moon. And uh, my college was so supportive. They actually helped finance my trip down there. And I, I, I flew down at the time uh, from upstate New York to Baltimore. When I got to Baltimore, I had what I thought in my mind was the best interview in the world. You know, I, I went there for two days. I, I met with the, uh, the the faculty and the staff. I I really enjoyed the the, the whole uh, environment, uh, and uh, I was just full of energy and so hopeful that I was going to get into Johns Hopkins and go, you know, live my dream as becoming a doctor. Well, it turns out on the way down there, I was sitting next to an individual, so elderly woman who was coughing the entire time I was on a plane. Now, anyone who's been on a plane, especially now, you're like acutely aware when someone is, is, is like next to you that's not, you know, not, not feeling well and particularly ill and then you know, worse if they're coughing uh, because you can't really escape. You can't go anywhere when you're, when you're on a plane. And that's just the whole, you know, now the big fear of flying is, is I can understand now why that's so real. I bring that up because while I was down in in, at, at, uh, in Baltimore, I didn't encounter anyone that was particularly sick. I mean, we had a tour of the hospital, but it was just a very peripheral, tangential one. But when I got back about a week later from being uh, you know, off this trip, I became very ill. I had fevers, I had chills, I had a very stiff neck. And literally almost a week to the day of returning, I found myself in the infirmary at my undergrad uh, and uh, fortunately, even though the, the, the great people that took care of me at the time misdiagnosed what I actually had, they actually administered a therapy that probably saved my life at least for a few more hours until uh, definitively my fraternity brothers at the time found me and rescued me, to, so to speak. So I went to the infirmary and I described my symptoms. It was a Friday. And they said, it sounds like you have a, a probably a gastrointestinal bug or something. So we're going to give you penicillin. You know, they gave me oral penicillin, which actually is a treatment for, you know, this particular bacterial meningitis, which is what I was diagnosed with ultimately. But I should have got a thousand times more of the dose, okay. not tablets. I should have been getting it intravenously and, and all of that. Now, so they gave me a medicine that probably helped me some to some extent and told me, go into my dorm room and just rest and try and drink plenty of fluids for the weekend and, and come back on Monday and see us. Well, I go back to my dorm room. I happened to be a resident assistant, so I was all by myself. I was a single, single dorm room. I didn't have a roommate. And for the remainder of Friday morning and the afternoon, I just was worsening. I mean, my headache was getting worse. My feet was getting worse. I was wrenching. I was throwing up. And I just could not move. And, uh, you know, it, my fraternity brothers were looking for me because we had a social event that uh, we were planning that, that evening. And no one could find Hassan. Where is Hassan? And uh, fortunately, um, my two fraternity brothers came looking for me, and they came to my dorm room and, uh, and, and knew how to get in, had the combination. They came in and, and saw me. And I remember distinctly that uh, one of them said, it smells like death in here, Hassan. And they, they carried me to <laughs> the outside of the dorm room, put me in a car, and drove me 
to the local hospital. Now here is again, another one of these divine, you know, miracles, if you will, of thinking about what happened. I arrive on a Friday night at a hospital in a college town and I'm uptunded, I'm not responding, you know, and, and two guys and big burly guys are bringing me in. And it looks like a typical scene on a college campus, right? Oh, this guy must've taken something. <laughs> And, and fortunately, my, you know, everyone was like, he doesn't drink. He's not, he didn't take anything. Something's wrong with him. And it was, you know, the, the great uh, perceptive, I guess, staff and faculty at the hospital to realize and recognize, hey, this is not a typical Friday night college student that looks like he may have had too much to drink or something like that. And something may actually be wrong. And all I remember was sort of bits and pieces of, of, of what was actually happening and replaying this now in my mind many years later, it seems like just yesterday. But at one point I was laying there on the table and I remember them, you know, what I now know is a sternal rub, which is to try and keep people awake. Um, at another point, I remember myself being in the fetal position and uh, it, I heard, uh, you know, one of the physicians saying, don't move or sticking a needle in your back. And that now is, I know, to be uh, lumbar puncture and it was sticking a needle into my spine to get spinal fluid so they can make this diagnosis. Uh, and fast forward, at one point I remember waking up and and looking up and then just seeing the lights and I was like, oh no, I've, I've arrived, it's over, <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> and, and then like a masked kind of a masked figure, a masked figure, which we all now can you identify with masked figures, a masked figure kind of comes into the into my frame of reference and and the person is standing over me and he said, don't move, you know, uh, we're all wearing masks because you have a very bad infection. Uh, and then I proceeded to spend the next several weeks in the hospital and I was in the ICU with a tube in every orifice. Uh, I wasn't breathing on my own. I needed assistance to do that. And, uh, you know, catheter and the bladder and all that stuff. And um, all I could think about, Kim, in my mind was, how could I die? I'm supposed to be a doctor. You know, this is not supposed to be happening. This is not how the movie's supposed to end. And I remember how powerful that thought was. And, and I remember them saying I had a bad infection. I didn't know what it was. I just didn't really understand or appreciate it. All I could remember was that I was in this fog in this state in this sort of like weird place. Uh, it was absolutely surreal. And all that was that was driving me and sort of like keeping me going was, don't die, you're gonna be a doctor. 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 Johns Hopkins is gonna accept you to become a doctor. So I finally sort of, you know, convalesce, if you will, and I'm now on the floor. I, I went out, transitioned from the ICU. Now I'm on the regular ward. And I'll never forget this. And this is how powerful this whole experience has been in terms of shaping, you know, I think the kind of practice that I have right now, and you asked that very, you know, important question, like, why is it that you do what you do? How did you come to be the kind of practitioner that you are right now? How did that influence your, your, your ability to be a doctor, but also how you prosecute or you practice and you, yeah. you administer care? Well, Kim, the doctor that saw me in the ER came up to see me. This is like almost three weeks later from admitting me in the hospital. This is absolutely unprecedented. I mean, I would challenge anyone to, to, to think about their experience in the ER and think if there's ever been an ER doctor that has actually come back to see you actually in the hospital once you've been admitted. It just doesn't happen. And this person's care, this thoughtfulness, this actual regard to wonder like what happened to that young kid that I took care of in the ER how's he doing? So he comes up to see me and he's carrying, I'll never forget this huge textbook. It's a medical textbook. 
It's Harrison's. It's like our Bible of internal medicine. And what happened actually was he learned about me. He took time to actually learn about me because it wasn't enough that I was just a sick college kid, but he must've found out from my friends that, hey, he just, he just came back from interview for med school. He wants to be what you want to be. And he came up and he said, I heard you wanted to be a doctor. And I'm like, you know, I'm still sort of like, you know, recovering from all of this. I still don't quite understand what happened to me. I, and he says, well, I want you to know you had a very bad infection. You had something called bacterial meningitis. And I brought this textbook for you to read about what you had. He left it with me. And I remember reading about it. And I was like, wow, I should be dead. I mean, like everything about what I'm reading about says there should be no reason I'm alive. But here's what he did, which I'll never forget. He said, I have a test for you since you want to be a doctor. He said, what's two plus two? And I was like, this must be like a trick question. What is he talking about? I said, uh, four. And he said, you're going to be a great doctor. And I'll never forget. His name was Dr. McCullum. And I don't know if he's still alive. I don't know where he is. I never saw him again. But I remember that. I mean, look, it's been over 20, almost 25 years later. I remember that experience. And I'm sharing it with you and your audience. And I think about how powerful it is that as a physician, as a practitioner, as a nurse, anyone that takes care of another human being, you have an opportunity to do something so small and so insignificant or something really great and powerful, which you may never know how that impact is going to, you know, how that impact is going to sort of influence that life, that other individual. Now, he may never know. And if he's not alive and he may have been, you know, he this this is what he did. And what that did is it created a sort of cascading effect. So I get discharged out of the hospital and I proceed to, to, to mourn the fact that for the rest of the summer, I have to live with the fact that I didn't get accepted into Johns Hopkins. So what was waiting for me when I got, when I got out of the hospital was a, was a big fat rejection letter from, the, from, from Johns Hopkins, but it's okay. I made it work. And actually now I'm on faculty at Hopkins. So I feel, I feel like I've got poetic justice. But, yeah, uh, yeah, you made it work. <laughs> made it work. But, but I remember what that encounter was. And I remember how powerful it was. Like just taking the time to just come back and see me and ask me a question to, to think about like the fact that I wanted to be a doctor. And he remembered that. So I try in my own daily engagements with patients. And it's hard to do sometimes. You're just very busy. But I'll, every once in a while, I'll just it'll reflect and it hit me and say, hey, I have an opportunity to make a big difference in this person's life. I can ask them a question. I can make a funny joke. I can, I could just share a story with them. I could just get the time or take the time and space to understand what they're all about because that purpose is so important. That purpose kept me alive. Well, and what I thank you for sharing that because you shared a little extra than what what I got from the book there. So that was really cool. What I really got from reading your story in the book was about having that experience of being the patient and being so anxious vulnerable, and the right. fear and, and exposed right. and vulnerable, like you just said, right. all of that, not knowing what's going on and how that helps you now be able to put yourself in your, oh, in your patient's yes. shoes. Absolutely. It's all, it's, everything that you're describing there is what I would like to call empathy. And I, I know many of my colleagues in, in healthcare, I mean, most people go their whole life, thankfully, without actually having 
been very, very sick. I mean, sick to the point where you are depending on everybody to do something for you. I was in that position. I mean, when you have a tube in your orifice, you can't move. You're sitting there in that embarrassing gown with the back that's exposed <laughs> to the derriere and you can't do anything. And what's worse, you don't even know what's happening to you. I mean, think about how vulnerable, how scared and how, you know, how, how, you know, how frail you must be in that kind of situation. Right. And so every time I walk into my patient's room, again, I, I kind of try and put myself back into that place and say, this person is in a really precarious state in life right now. You know, they don't know what's going on. They're scared. They're fearful. Try and come down to, uh, you know, have a conversation with them with that understanding and with that empathy. Uh, and it, it's been a blessing uh, that I had that experience because it, it, it makes me feel as if I've walked in the shoes of, of some of my patients. And, and even then, I still don't understand, I still realize that I can never really truly experience the pain and the suffering that my patients have on a daily right. basis. But I can try my best to try and understand and appreciate what it is they're going through and, and impart some sort of compassion and, and empathy that, that hopefully will help quell their fear help alleviate their anxiety and help them to feel more comfort and deliver a human care. <laughs> so there you go. Well, I, it's, it's wonderful knowing that doctors like you exist. So, so thank you for doing what you do. I want to just quickly say um, we have Betty who's already saying she's anxious to get your book. I don't, I'm trying to find that comment again. Yeah. She says, I'm anxious to get his book soon. And thank you to Allie for putting the book link down in the comments. So if you'd like to check out the book, I highly recommend it for sure. Um, and so, so, Okay, Dr. Teddy, you have a lot of messages and um, I wanna make sure that you get to share you know, the core message that you want to share here today. What comes up for me is your whole message of purpose, personalization and partnership. But would you like to elaborate on that or some of your sure. other key messages? Yeah, I, I would absolutely like to elaborate on that. And, and maybe, maybe what I could do is <clears throat> just provide another sort of reference point and contemporary context. So again, yeah. you can't go anywhere right now and not think about COVID, right? And and COVID is impacting every aspect of our lives right now. Whether again, like I said, you're experiencing it firsthand, you've heard somebody that, that you know someone that's been sick, you yourself have been sick, or even if you've just been watching it on the news and it's just inconvenienced your life, even though you've never seen a case and, and don't even know what this the, all the hubbub is about. Well, you know, very early in the um, year, I started to recognize the things that were going on in the East and all over the world. And uh, this COVID was, was, was in, in, at that time, to me, something that was very significant and, and becoming problematic. Uh, and I've had the uh, both interest, desire, and opportunity to, to study pandemics throughout my, my career. Uh, and so to me, this was a very serious situation that was developing and evolving. And then, of course, everyone remembers what where they were probably mid-March in America anyway, and the, the NBA season gets canceled. And then from that point on, it was a cascade of events that basically led <laughs> to us being in a totally different world right now. <clears throat> well, very early on, and, and I think I'm unlike many people, I, I think this is a very common phenomenon that occurred, I, I, I felt really you know, dispassionate about everything. I, it was hard. It was, I couldn't go to work. I couldn't meet with my team members. I, 
I, I wasn't uh, sort of doing my daily routine things. I had a whole, Ali and I, you know, my colleague that's been helping me to get the message out with the book. We had a whole book tour planned and we were going to go give commencement speeches to the medical schools and deliver the book to students so that they could have this message and have these tools to go out and be, you know, great healers. And all of that got canceled. And I got myself into what I would say is a bit of a depression, a bit of a, a funk, you know, a, right. a fog kind of like descended on me. And then what's worse is in late March and early April, I started to have family members get hospitalized because my wife and, my, and, and, and myself, are, or we're both from New York and Brooklyn in particular, and our family members and friends were being hospitalized because New York was like the epicenter of this, just this terrible right. pandemic. We lost two aunts. I lost an uncle. And it was just happening and happening. And then in the hospital, I was taking care of patients that were having complications of COVID. And so I had these, you know, sort of existential, you know, you know, out of body experience almost like, oh my gosh, I know so much about pandemics. I know how bad they are, but now I'm actually, it's impacting me personally. It's impacting me personally, professionally. Uh, my, my son started his freshman year of high school and his whole you know, second half wow. of the year got devastated. My daughter was graduating from middle school and she's going to be entering high school and she was going to have confirmation. And the very aunts that were just sitting in our home visiting us here in Maryland in February were now gone. And not only were they gone, they will never be able to see her graduate or go to her confirmation. So there was this, there was this deep grief and loss. I was feeling personally, professionally, I had this great perspective because I had all this knowledge, all this information, this insight about pandemics and knew how serious they were and how serious they are and how they fundamentally change society politically, economically, socially, techno you know, technologically. And that was what was happening, right? It was unfolding between, you know, before my eyes. But you know, in that same way, I felt another thing. I felt grief. I had this perspective. But then I also had this great deep frustration. And the frustration was so many fold. It was because I had I had lost, you know, individuals that I loved on my own. My my family was was impacted in a great and a negative way. Um, you know, thankfully not as bad as others. And I know so many people going through so much pain and suffering right now. But the frustration came from the fact that our society wasn't coming together as we should. And, and, and help to address this. And now it's become even worse and we're just factioned and we're, we have civil unrest and we have all of this, this strife and conflict. And that frustration is, 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 is still ingrained in me and it's deep and it's, and it's, it's, just, um, it's just disappointing. And then I started to think, you know, as I emerged from this and I started to think to myself, you know, those words that are in that book, the art of human care is it, are exactly what's needed right now. And, and even though, you know, the, the plans to, you know, do a big book tour and, and get the word out there uh, were, were sort of designed and uh, were, were the strategy for that came at a time when there was not COVID necessarily. Um, I really feel now more passionately than ever that those themes of having a purpose, <clears throat> personalizing the care and, to, and, and personalizing how you would actually adapt and evolve from you know, this experience that we're all, you know, kind of all kind of commiserating with and going through with, the, with regards to COVID um, is important. But most importantly, it's partnerships because it would be the partnership that would kind of allay some of this frustration that I'm having now. We shouldn't be arguing and fighting and 
and thinking about like, you know, well, whose idea is that? And should we do that and this? We should actually be rallying together. Uh, and so what I hope is, will, will happen now, and, and I'm kind of rededicating my, my sort of mission, if you will, uh, to sort of really getting this message out, uh, especially during this time of COVID, is to help people find their purpose again, because I, I needed to do that for myself, just so I could emerge out of the funk and evolve from this, this, this very terrible you know, pandemic that we're all dealing with. I had to personalize, you know, the, the issues for myself because I was going through this very personal kind of loss. Uh, but I've also partnered with people. I partnered with you and, and I've partnered with Ali and others that are helping me to have a platform and perhaps deliver a message to a lot of people that I hope will be helpful, inspirational. And if nothing else, uh, bring them some art that will bring a smile to their face and, and, and uh, you know, lift their soul. Yeah, there's beautiful art in this book. Um, of course, the art from your daughter, Ella, but also um, Jessica Lagon. Is yes. did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. Yep. Gorgeous art. Um, and Dalton Scholl. Yeah, so there are many and artists that have contributed. It was the, the artwork was a partnership and uh, beautiful art there. And, you know, you, you mentioned, Kim, at the very beginning, and you showed that uh, the audience that it's a, it's a quick read. It's a short book. That was done intentionally. Um, I, I learned, uh, I've been working with lots of book coaches now, and I've written a few of, a few of the books, as you mentioned, and I, I want to be able to write something that, especially in our day and age where people just don't have the attention span to like sit through or, like something like War and Peace, I wanted to write something that someone will be able to read in at least a sitting or two and be able to take the whole message in. But I also write it in such a way that you 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 just you made you brought a, a smile to my to, you brought a smile to my soul when you said, you know, I had to stop and pause because I want it to be powerful enough though, even though it's brief, that I want people to realize and recognize there's so much in there and it's done that it's done intentionally to be brief so you can read it, but it's 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 done and, and I hope the message is conveyed in such a way that it leaves a lasting impression uh, on you. <laughs> It totally does. I just, I mean, seriously, like I probably had to stop because I got emotional like five or six times while reading the book and um, your heart. Yeah. Your heart absolutely shows up in this book. And I have so many questions I could ask you and uh, we only have, you know, an hour. So, um, I, you know, I'm going to quickly look at my questions here. Let me, let me ask you. So this, this one question that is, is something that's um, okay. So many things can lead to someone needing a transplant. You are a heart right. and lung transplant surgeon, a thoracic surgeon, but for everyone who doesn't know quite what that means, heart and lung transplant surgeon, which I love how you actually talk about in the book takes you from someone who's practically, they're basically on their deathbed to someone who's being reborn through sure. this, this transplant they're getting. Right. And so I, I know there's many things that could lead to someone needing a transplant, but how would you answer the question? Is there a way to answer the question? You know, what can people do to prevent themselves from ever being in a position of needing a transplant? I don't know. I feel like there's a potential answer there. And so I just wanted to ask that question. Sure. Yeah. Well, no, that's a great question. You know, the, 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 the reality is uh, it all depends on, on how you know, our patients come to us sort of with this common pathway of having a failing heart or failing lungs and, and then needing a transplant. You know, the good, the good news is not many people 
will ever come to that point. Most people, yeah. even though they have, you know, a bad heart or they have bad lungs, you know, will never need a transplant because they'll be able to sort of live a fairly normal life, although a little bit debilitated with the organs that they have. Those individuals that do come to us though with a failing heart and to a point where they're at end stage of that, you know, sort of organs ability to keep them alive um, are very, very sick. And, uh, you know, the, the, the conditions uh, that can lead to that are many. Uh, there's heart disease, just regular heart disease, having multiple heart attacks, having surgeries that, you know, have not quite fixed the heart the way it, it should. Um, just getting a viral infection sometimes. You know, we get young patients that just healthy, strong, fit individuals who for some reason succumb with something called an idiopathic cardiomyopathy or a viral, you know, infection of the heart that just weakens the muscle and, and, and causes it to fail. Um, so you have these two extremes. You have people that have had, you know, very bad heart conditions and disease over a lifetime that just gets to the point where the pump just fails. And you can have it strike individuals that are, you know, young and healthy, but it's just, the, you know, the, the, the consequence of chance and bad circumstance. And then, of course, there's even on the very, very, very young spectrum of the ages with the young babies that are born with some congenital defects and, and sometimes structural, uh, you know, things within the heart that are not just not only, you know, leading to them being sick there, but that are conducive or not conducive with them having a full and, 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 and healthy life. And so they may need a transplant, you know, even at a very young age. So there's a myriad, I guess, is what I'm getting at, of, yeah. of conditions that will lead you down that path. Lungs are the same way. You know, there's certainly individuals that have, you know, had self-inflicted uh, conditions where they were smoking their entire life and they got to the point where the lungs were damaged so bad that they were dependent on oxygen and without a transplant, they would not be able to survive. People have actually require transplants for infections, things that are not necessarily their fault. Uh, we transplant uh, on every given year uh, a number of individuals for the flu or just a really bad infection. We've already transplanted patients that have had COVID and have had complications of COVID and have experienced lung damage and end-stage lung damage. Uh, so there's a, there's a gamut of, of right. conditions that can all lead to that, yeah. Well, so let me ask you, you emphasize the importance of of, and I don't know how you quite go about this, but about when that person receives a transplant of somehow conveying the message of the importance of having purpose for them yeah. in moving forward with their life. Yeah. And so talk to us a little bit about that value of purpose. Do you think that yeah. it would make a difference for that person if they'd had purpose prior to their life or how, I mean, I don't know. Do you typically see people come to you that already feel they have purpose and they're needing a transplant or I just, I don't know. I'm just Sure, sure. Well, let me let me answer the question with uh, giving a little bit more, you know, uh, context to transplant and the world of transplant, okay. which is a very unfamiliar world to to many. If you, you know, thankfully never had to have a transplant, don't have family members that, that needed one, and haven't really come into contact with being a donor or anything like that. Um, transplant medicine to me embodies uh, the really total package of healthcare. It's a very comprehensive very professionalized and a very caring and nurturing kind of practice. And this is transplants for all organs, whether it be kidneys, liver, um, heart, lung, all of that. And why, why I say that is because if you look at all of the elements that go into you know, the practice of a transplant uh, and, and what goes into a transplant is a myriad of individuals that you want to talk about a partnership. This is partnership you know, on, on steroids. Because all of the 
members of the team come together. Uh, I don't make a single decision about who's going to get a transplant or not. Right. It's actually a panel of individuals. It's social workers, it's nurses, it's psychologists, it's behavioral health professionals. All of these individuals will interview a patient, will get to know the patient, will we'll do a financial analysis on the patient's circumstance to make sure that they have in place the resources to be able to sustain a transplant if they come to need one eventually, to make sure they have the social network and social support in place, you know, that they have family members that can, they can rely on when they need help, when they have to come for tests or studies that can help them with their medications. And so we make a decision not based by, not based on one individual alone. It's a whole like panel of, 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 of experts that are sitting around a table on a daily basis. And we, we make a decision collectively as, as far as, is this, a, is this the best therapy for this individual? Is this the best course of action for them? And so when you think about that, it's like having a whole team of doctors, nurses, professionals, all taking care of Kim. Like this is what we want to make sure that she is. And, and I think about it as one of being one of the most purest, most gratifying and satisfying, you know, things in, in healthcare that we do because you have this whole team of people that come together all dedicated to making sure this individual is going to get this precious gift. And if they do get the precious gift, uh, that they do well with it. And, and that is a very powerful thing. And you talked about and asked about purpose. One of the things that we do assess, um, which is a very important factor is we want to make sure that the person's going to do well. So for instance, with liver, with liver transplants. Lots of people that need liver transplants need it because of cirrhosis. And that sometimes is self, again, self-inflicted by drinking too much and the liver fails. Well, you have to make sure that that patient that you're going to give this new gift to is not going to drink again. They have to have a social contract. You have to make sure there's been time that's gone that they've actually, you know, they changed their life. They've, de de they've developed a new purpose. They've got a new lease on life. They have a new sort of way of being that they're going to, and we assess that and we take that into account. Same thing with lung transplants and smokers. We make sure they stop smoking. We do tests. We have behavioral health sort of like, you know, surveys and analysis and all of those things. So purpose is actually very foundational in the, um, whoa, <laughs> that's a loud, uh, alarm. Found, uh, purpose is very, purpose is very foundational uh, for transplant evaluation. When we wow. evaluate a patient for transplant, we look at, you know, all aspects of their life, physical, emotional, spiritual, and we, we take into account all of those different things to make sure that, you know, this is going to be the right therapy for them and that they're going to do well with this, with this, you know, this gift of life, if you will. So yeah, purpose is, is really important. And I think, you know, purpose is one of those things that I think I write about this in the book and, and it's something that's dawned on me. It's, it's not the kind of thing where, individuals you know, wake up one day and say, ah, this is my purpose. I almost always believe purpose comes from actually doing something like you, what you're doing with your guests, with your audience, you are doing something that gives you the purpose. You, know, you, you Every day is a new day. You're bringing everybody this perspective, this insight, this great wisdom by the acts, the actions, and by the things that you're doing. And that is the purpose. That is like how one develops purpose. And it's almost always it's almost always, almost absolutely always realized in the act of doing something for others that one discovers their purpose. I completely agree with that. Yes, wholeheartedly. 
So today you're a heart and lung transplant surgeon. When you were embarking on this journey of becoming a doctor, did you at one point think you were going to become a different kind of doctor, specialize in something different? No, not really. Oh no. Okay. Just curious. That just came up. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think, you know, it, I think it, again, it started with, I wanted to be a doctor. I thought I would just be a family practice doctor. I absolutely love surgery. I think that surgery is very artistic. I think there's a lot of creativity in surgery. Maybe that's what influenced me there. I had the opportunity to see a heart surgeon perform heart surgery very early in my medical school training. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. The person stopped the heart and it started to beat again. And I was like, I want to do that when I grow up. And and, and that led me down that path. <clears throat> and like I said, I, I had the, the the great fortune of going to you know University of Minnesota, which is really the epicenter and the, the birthplace for modern heart surgery in the country wow. and a place where we do a lot of transplant. And so I was exposed to this whole other world of, of, of medicine. And really, like I said, it really embraced the, the aspect of, of this collective team-based kind of effort to all kind of rally around and get all these professionals around uh, to take care of this patient. It is really a, a, a very pure way of practicing medicine and one that I really enjoy. And it's given me great satisfaction and fulfillment. Well, I guess looking at the time, one of the last things I want to be sure to touch on is there was a word you used in the book that I was, it was new for me to hear a medical doctor use this word in referring to themselves. And I absolutely loved it. So I want to ask you about it. You refer to yourself as a healer, which I completely uh -huh. agree that you are. But I want to ask you, do you find that other doctors think of themselves as healers as well? And yeah, I don't know. That's a great question, right? Yeah, it, it seems counterintuitive, right? You know, stop a doctor in the in the middle of the night or in a dark alley and say, hey, are you a healer? And they'll probably be like, no, I'm a doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would think. And it seems so counterintuitive, right? Well, well, it perhaps comes from the fact that there's a there's a there's a story I share in the beginning of the book. I'll leave it as a as a teaser for those, and you you'll you'll you probably appreciate the story that I tell in the beginning of the book with this really ancient story about a, a true healer. I like to think that I fashion and model my practice and my way of sort of approaching medicine after that person. And the reason why is because here's the thing, you know, we are all going to die at some point in our lives. So whatever happens to you along the way, it, it, you know, you can temporize, you can, you can ease some pain and suffering. You can, you can, you can try and, 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 and give some people and some folks that are sick a little bit more life, a little bit better life. But at the end of the day, we're all going to pass away, right? And so it's that time on earth that you have that you really want to make the most of. So when it comes to healing, and I think about that, you don't have to be a physician to heal. What you're doing is healing. What you're doing in, in terms of giving people inspiration is so powerful. It can be a, it can be a very healing elixir. And, and I share some stories, and you probably have come across those, where I've had patients that were terminally ill. There was no way that I could do anything. There was no medicine, there's no surgery, there's nothing that I could do that could cure them. But you don't have to cure in order to heal. And that's really what the message is about. You don't have to cure in order to heal. And healing is something that's deeply human. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gift to be able to heal somebody. It's a gift to be healed but you don't have to be a doctor with a medical degree for that. You just have to be another human being who cares about another human being. And you just have to be able to give that person what they need at that time 
to lift their soul and their spirit and you'll heal in that way. Well, you totally uplift and I want to say heal spirits just hearing you talk, knowing the work that you do, what you know, how you are writing books so people can see it again. Um, and so thank you again so much for being here. And I, I want to let everyone know that um, this is, of course, in the comments on Facebook. But for anybody who's listening to the replay, you can go find out more about Dr. Teta by going to drteta.com. And that's the word doctor spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-T-E-T-T-E-H.com. And um, Dr. Teta, do you have any final words. I mean, there's so seriously, there's so much more I could ask you. I had a whole massive list of questions <laughs> and we only got like to a few of them. Um, but do you have any final parting words or anything you want to leave every, anybody with today? Uh, it would just be one word and that's gratitude. Uh, mm -hmm. Gratitude for you giving me the uh, great invitation to share your platform with you and your audience. I thank you for that. And and if uh, you know, there's one word that everyone kind of takes away from our engagement here is that that of gratitude. Just think about where you are in life, think about um, the fact that you're alive today uh, when so many people are not. You know, in our country alone, we've lost over 170,000 people almost in a very short period of time to a devastating pandemic. And that's in our country alone. Those people are not here with us anymore. So just think about, you know, what you have to be grateful for and start every day with that sort of mantra. And I think, uh, you'll make every day a new day and every day a better day. That's a wonderful parting message. And I want to give a shout out to Bettina, who was with us in the comments saying, inspiring and uplifting from a true healer and wonderful author. So thank you for that, Bettina. So again, you can get Dr. Hassan Teda's book, The Art of Human Care with Ella Blue, his daughter, and her drawings um, over on Amazon right now. You can find out more by going to drteta.com. And this is just one of many books he has. Uh, so yeah, and and yeah, so many awesome stories in here. Um, just again, big shout out to that. So that concludes today's show. I just wanna say thank you. I am grateful to Dr. Teta for thank you for being here today. And thank you to everyone who is with us live or in the comments. Let, let us know what you're taking away from today's conversation. And remember that every day truly is a new day. Wherever you were yesterday does not have to be where you are today. Wherever you are today does not have to be where you are tomorrow. That can be literally, that can be metaphorically. And the power of purpose and gratitude, huge, huge, huge. And I, I hope that you absolutely are able to take away something new today from hearing from someone who does have such a science-oriented academic background and yet absolutely shows his heart through his own passion for art and for true human care. It's just beautiful. I love it. So with that said, I will see you all again very soon for another Every Day is a New Day show. Have an amazing day, everybody. Stay there right, stay right there, Dr. Hassan. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. okay, bye everybody. Bye. And that's today's show. So, what are you taking away? Let me know down in the comments wherever you listened or watched today's episode and connect with me on Facebook on the Every Day is a New Day show and coaching page or visit kimoneillcoaching.com for more info. Remember, every day is always a new day. Wherever you are today does not have to be where you are tomorrow. There is always hope and you will always be amazing. I'll see you next time.